0: In the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, it's the best of flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Today on the program, Reimagining Safety, a new hard hitting documentary by filmmaker Matthew Solomon, which examines abuse in policing and some profound alternatives. Also, noted Palestinian scholar, editor, and blogger Ramsey Baru talks about the expending ethnic cleansing of Palestine under the new ultra-extreme right-wing Israeli government, and a segment on taking on the water privatizers in Florida. All this straight ahead on The Best of Flashpoints. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Best of Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up first on the program, we feature a segment from yesterday's show featuring filmmaker Matthew Solomon discussing his new hard-hitting documentary, Reimagining Safety. And we turn our attention to this new hard-hitting documentary.
1: Uh, It's by filmmaker Matthew Solomon. It examines the uh, abuse in policing and offers some alternatives. And the film is called Reimagining Safety. Well, we have to sort of reimagine a whole new uh, system, and we are happy... uh, to be able to talk about this with uh, the filmmaker Matthew Solomon. This film is going to be premiered uh, locally and just outside the Bay Area. We'll tell you more about that later. But we're joined by Matthew Solomon. One of those uh, also featured in the uh, film, uh, Professor Jody David Amore. He is the Roy P. Kroc Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He's a widely published scholar, a popular lecturer. He studies the intersection of race, law, morality, psychology, politics, ordinary language, philosophy, and the performing arts. We welcome both of you to Flashpoints. Matthew Solomon, could you give us a a bit of like a, a an overview of your new film, what it's about, what you tried to do?
2: Yeah, yeah, thank you, and thanks for for having us on. Uh, yeah, uh, reimagining safety came about. Uh, I mean, it's kind of multi layered, but I'll, I'll try and try and keep it short. Um, prior to the pandemic, I'm I'm a filmmaker uh, in Los Angeles, and I also do conflict resolution work, and you know, work with organizations teaching people how to. know build partnership and and uh work together and when the pandemic started and i couldn't go anywhere i went back to school and i decided to get a master's degree in public administration uh so that i could you know focus more on how to have society work better and through the course of that study uh i started applying the problems with policing and incarceration and the the homeless problem here in los angeles to uh the constructs of uh sustainability and how communities can prosper and and you know be healthy on all levels mentally physically emotionally and so when i was coming towards the end of the program and it was time to do my my master's thesis uh one of my professors suggested that i do uh, a documentary and so this is that. And and my goal was, you know, there's a lot of information on why policing doesn't work, uh, why incarceration uh, doesn't make us any safer. It actually makes us less safe. Um, and I, I wanted to focus on, well, well, if not that, then what? Because that's always what comes up in those discussions is, well, what do we do if we don't have police? What do we do if we don't have prisons? How do we how do we? you know, survive that and stay safe. And so I got together, you know, with these 10 experts who are all amazing and come from different perspectives. And, you know, it's really about care and resources and, and reshaping how we view each other. Uh, and, you know, members of our society that, uh, you know, we may have looked down upon, uh, at, at one point. Um, and, and to really, you know, uh, Put everything through a different lens of care, of of you know rehabilitation, of having people be supported, and so that's what's you know demonstrated in the film. It's that roadmap of where we're at, why we're there, and where we can go.
1: All right, let's let's bring in uh, Professor Amor here, uh, Professor. It's good to have you with us on Flashpoints. Um, Great to be with maybe, you. Maybe good to have you. Maybe we begin. With just letting you take a, a shot at what we just saw happen in Memphis, of course, the city where Martin Luther King was mm-hmm. murdered, um, could you talk a little bit about the your response to this uh, latest uh, sort of police murder scene? Uh, is it possible to have reform uh in a system that is so out of control and clearly um, undermined by racism, no matter what color the cops are.
3: Yeah, Memphis shines a bright league light on the poverty of reform approaches to fixing this problem. We have tried, and I used to be a big advocate of and supporter Reforms, you know, and I I had to be disembarrassed and disabused of a lot of my misconceptions over time as through the process of elimination, we saw each new reform come into place in response to some tragedy that often was on video. You know, we say, okay, maybe de-escalation training will help here. How about community policing? How about implicit bias training? Let's go that way. Oh, body cam, that's the fix. Oh, no, what we need is more representation. We need more people from the communities that are being policed to be in those uniforms doing the policing. They'll have the natural sympathy and empathy that, uh, that police, other police don't have. They had all of those reforms and more in both Memphis and Minneapolis. And look at what happened. Look at what continues to happen. Look at the racial injustice groundhog day that we continue to wake up to. And it's really, I think, a moment for us to pause and say clearly then the reform route isn't working. You know, last year we killed the police, rather, killed more people than any other time that since they've been recording police killings. That's last year after the George Floyd protests, after all the reforms that we've talked about, it, there, there's more killing than ever going on. So the reform route clearly isn't working. The alternative route then that we're, we're finally... Coming to see is that we have to minimize the footprint of the police, recognize that they are violence workers inherently. We give them guns with loaded ammunition, stun guns, mace, clubs, handcuffs, boots, fists, elbows, knees, like we saw in the video. They are violence workers. If we want to minimize the harm they cause to stereotype communities, we have to minimize the contact between them and members of those communities. For example, Take them out of traffic stops. Why did they pull over Tyree Nichols in the first place? It wasn't any reason. And the, the police chief said, we don't even find any reckless driving. There was no reason. But even if there was some kind of pretext stop that they were pulling them over for, why? Why do we have police and traffic enforcement at all? You know, we've, uh, in jurisdictions where they took police out of traffic enforcement, fatalities didn't go up. It doesn't make us safer to have them there from a, from a traffic fatality standpoint. So reduce their footprint, taking them out of there, out of houselessness policy, out of poverty governance, out of drugs, the drug war. And you reduce their footprint by seventy, eighty percent and, and, and increased a lot of the overall well-being for the community.
1: Professor, um, there seems to be a dearth of um, critical thinking. And I'm wondering, because it's driving me a little bit crazy, uh, but the there was this sort of... Uh, national applause for the police chief in Memphis because she acted so quickly. But I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is the police chief that uh, invented this unit. That yep. was one of the, sort of the overall supervisors of this unit. We're having more yep. and more reports about this unit left a trail of, uh, of broken bones. What is the yep. deal? Why would she still be? Do you wonder why she is still the chief of police?
3: Uh, uh, the only reason I don't wonder why she is because, is because I know that police departments have such a well-oiled public relations machine. Here in, in uh, LA, for example, uh, the LAPD has spent over three million dollars. That's the most conservative estimate. Some have it at around five million dollars a year, just on public relations, just on spinning narratives, reaching out to reporters. You know, looking at the body cam footage and making sure that it's that, you know that it's presented the right way, and so. Yes, you know, law enforcement has been fabulously successful, think about it, over the last 30 or 40 years of growing itself. Um, some cities, you know, like in L.A., we're spending $3.2 billion, eight point one two million million every day on LAPD. They've grown 40% over the last eight years. They have a fabulous public relations machine. They prey on fear. They know how to stoke fear and have people irrationally respond to that by going for more draconian laws and more policing, right? And so I I wish I could say that it surprised me, Dennis, but sadly it doesn't.
1: It doesn't. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We've got some sound here. I'm not exactly sure what we have. Uh, We managed to pull it down at the last minute, ran into some technical problems, but maybe uh, we can play a little of this sound and then ask our filmmaker uh, to contextualize it and what uh, you hoped uh, to do in the film. But let's listen to a little bit of sound. This is not some kind of abstract, utopian
2: envisioning that this is a very practical, programmatic intervention. So if we really wanna save lives, one of the things we could do is to send someone other than police, to send trained mental health workers, outreach workers, social workers, often together as an outreach team who can respond to someone in crisis. A number of cities are doing this now. From Eugene, Oregon, to Denver, Colorado, to Houston, Texas, this is working. They're diverting 911 calls. No one's getting arrested and no one is getting killed in these encounters. And in Denver, where they've had a very robust program for over a year now, they've not requested police assistance a single time on these calls.
1: And uh, that is a clip from the new hard-hitting documentary by Matthew Solomon, which examines uh, abuse in policing and offers some alternatives. Uh, we've got the filmmaker uh, with us and Professor Geordia Moore, uh and uh, incredibly important and timely film, uh, Matthew. This notion, and Professor, this notion of uh, you... you You need some help. Somebody in your family, someone you love, is having some kind of breakdown. And before you know it, it turns into an execution. I have come to the scene of so many stories like this. I have reported on so many stories like this. It's almost predictable. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Let's start with you, um, Matthew, and then I'd love to hear the professor respond
2: sure yeah and that was uh that was professor alex Vitali, who is a professor at brooklyn college in new york and he wrote a book called end of policing and so one of the things that's really great about that segment and uh some of the others is it really sh- demonstrates that things can be done differently if we cared you know if we really wanted change we could do that and you know f- so from my background with conflict resolution Um, you know, I'm looking at it as you can tell what, uh, people are committed to by the results that they're producing. And so if, if we were really about safety, we would be more safe. So instead, you know, like, like you were, you were saying, um, Nikki Black, who's a sociologist from Inglewood, who's also in the documentary talks about, she had a neighbor that was killed by Inglewood uh, police because he was having a mental breakdown. And if, if they simply would have, you know, known like who his mom was or who a relative was and they called, you know, them instead of the police, he would still be alive. And so we hear these stories time after time. Even, you know, Kenan Anderson, who was just murdered by uh, LAPD in Venice uh, here in Los Angeles uh about a month ago a little over a month ago was having a a breakdown like he had been in a car accident there was you know all this commotion the police show up they're you know wrangling him they're tasing him and he dies you know and so this is a, a a story that we hear time and time again and so you know like Professor Vitali saying uh, in that clip that you shared, you know, if if we're really invested in people and taking care of people, then let's let's have people who are actually trained to do that uh, show up. You know, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, President Biden made a speech a while back about how, you know, he said we expect the police to be mental health professionals and social workers. And, and no, we don't because they're not trained that way. You know, their training has nothing to do with that. And then they show up, and all they know is command and control. And if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to make you do it. And then that escalates and escalates, and there's more force, and then people die.
1: Professor Amor, uh, we hear um, a lot uh, about uh, community policing. But I think there's it's multiple misnomers. I mean, community policing policing would be in which the community has a sort of a, a helping force right a force that yeah. helps them deal with struggles that come up in everyday life and with the, this notion of community policing the, this this thing in uh, in Memphis that was a form of community policing yep um uh, yep. Uh, th- tell us about this yeah uh,
3: community policing is is more public relations you know spin um and it yeah, they're very good law enforcement has shown uh, you know th- itself to have an excellent political communication strategy instead of strategies. and so now what we're going to say is that we're going to put the police in to be community police right somehow the community part it makes us think of you know, solidarity and, and we're all in it together. But what we're really doing is we're putting them funking police down in disadvantaged neighborhoods that are resource starved. And then they're going to deal with the consequences of those criminogenic conditions, those resource starved communities. Um, and the safest communities like here in LA, are by far not the communities with the most police in them yeah. doing community policing. They're the, they're, they're the most best resource community, right? Beverly Hills, Bel Air, you know, um, right on down to, you know, Santa Monica, Mar Vista, you go through all up and down through the, through LA, you find lots of very safe communities as long as they're well resourced. When the communities are struggling and and people in there are Scratching out living and scrambling to survive—that's those criminogenic conditions. Yes, give rise to more crime. And rather than addressing those conditions directly, as we once, you know, said we were going to try to do with the war on poverty, uh, we turned our back on that. Bill Clinton came in and ended welfare as we knew know it. That FDR program, as we know and replace those kinds of interventions that are public welfare-oriented with the police. At the same time Bill, Bill, welfare, Bill Clinton was doing that to welfare, he was increasing the police budget, as you remember, You know, making it clear that the connection, in a sense, was there. So, yeah, it, it, that it is really the uh, community policing is just a nice, fuzzy word as as, uh, that police go around to try to justify a lot more over-policing and um, not turning to other alternatives.
1: Well, let me ask you, uh, how do you see the possibility of alternatives? Where, where would this struggle begin with you? What's number, if you're an advisor, uh, what do we do?
3: Okay, uh, number one, we get police out of areas that they shouldn't be in, out of traffic stops altogether, number one. You know, because they're really going, doing that for a lot of you know, fishing expeditions for guns and drugs and not making any dent in the problem, but take them, take their footprint out of the lives of socially marginalized and stereotyped community, communities. Minimize the contact. So get them out of traffic enforcement, get them out of poverty governance, i.e. get them out of houselessness interventions of any kind the way we're using them now, you know, get them out of mental health crises, altogether get them out of the drug war we've lost the drug war i walk around the corner here there are two three different marijuana boutiques we were locking people up 15 years ago for what i can do with a, at a boutique now with you know nice soft music in the background and pleasant lighting right so it's absurd that we're still prosecuting this war on drugs and giving police the authority to go in and and, and um and you know implement it by you know the stop and frisk on wheels traffic uh, enforcement policy so yeah, number those. That would be my number one uh, uh, recommendation. And then number two, take the bloated, you know, kind of punishment bureaucracy budget that police have absorbed. Now, only five to eight percent of their time is spent on responding to serious crimes or any kind of violent crimes. I mean, ninety-two percent of their time is spent just sitting around looking at each other. Right? That's that's part of the problem. That's why they need to go after turnstile jumpers and waste your time with all these traffic stops. So reduce their footprint and use that money that you were giving them now for their you know, pensions and budgets here in L.A. They're making over $100,000 a year after they've been on the force for just a couple of years. And then pensions and everything else, take all of that money and direct it at helping people with housing, helping, with people, helping people get out of the criminogenic conditions that lead to crime. That's what can make us all safer.
1: Beautiful. Listen, we just have a minute left, uh, Matthew Solomon, but uh, uh, you must be excited. Your film is going to be premiering on February 3rd at the San Pedro International Film Festival, I guess that is, uh, at Scripps College. And then you're going to take it to Memphis uh, and show it at Rhodes College. That's going to be amazing. Um, yeah. we congratulate you on all this. What's the best way if people want to check it out, go to a website, see more about what you all uh, have been up to? What's the best way to do that, Matthew?
2: Uh, yeah, the website is reimagining safety dot com and that has links. There's a trailer on there. There's links uh, for information. There's actually a resources page uh, and then all the socials you can connect. So it's reimagining safety dot com.
1: And Professor, we've got about 45 seconds. Would you immediately fire that police chief in Memphis? Does she need to go? Does yeah. that have to happen immediately?
3: Hell yeah. I hate to use the profanity over the air, but what we're talking about, she had some problems in Atlanta before she came to this department, by the way. But even in this department, the buck has to stop somewhere. The accountability buck has to stop somewhere. You know, and this condition was allowed to fester on her watch. And now she looks like, you know, oh, I am pro, I'm proactive. No, she's not proactive. This is really reactive, covering their behinds. I'm glad that they did it. I'm glad they were being more responsive than some of these departments, but it's far from enough.
1: And, Professor, what's the name of your book?
3: It's in asterisk gga Theory, Race, Language, unequal justice in the law and the reason i have that n-word in the title is it's the word we use to otherize people and we've otherized criminals especially black criminals and when we otherize folks it's easy to do the things that they did to tyree nichols you don't you're not looking at that person as an as a person you're looking at them as some kind of monster you're looking you're really inwardizing them and that's what i mean to get at in in the book
0: You're listening to The Best of Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up next on the program, we feature an interview with noted Palestinian scholar, editor, and blogger Ramsey Baroud. This is sort of
1: what uh, the press looks like. Uh, This is a perfect example. This is the BBC. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has called for Israel... And the Palestinians to make urgent steps to take urgent steps to restore calm and amid amid escalating violence. Speaking in Jerusalem, Blinken reiterated his support for a two-state solution as the best way to bring security to the two sides. Israel's new government opposes the creation of a Palestinian state. Joining us uh, to talk about it, and we are so glad to have him, is Ramsey Baroud. He is an internationally syndicated columnist, a media consultant, and author, founder, editor of the Palestine Chronicle, and the managing editor of the London-based Middle East Eye. He is the author of, among things, things, uh, Searching, Janine, the Second Palestinian Intifada, and My Father Was a Freedom Fighter, Gaza's Untold Story. He also co-authored with Alain Papay, uh, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. Well, uh, Ramsey, welcome back to Flashpoints. It is good to have you with us. You know, I, I read a little bit from the BBC, but it's sort of like every uh, story you're going to read about what's going on, you know, uh, sympathy for the Israelis, um, uh, urgent calm on both sides. Do you want to sort of talk a little bit about how you see the situation now Uh, and the idea of urgent calm on both sides? When, When do you suppose
4: the violence started for you. It seems to be um, kind of the same question, n- not on your part, you know, from, from you personally, but the same question that keeps that we Palestinians are confronted with all the time is the fact that the story becomes a story in mainstream media, BBC and everyone else, when Palestinians retaliate. But when the Palestinians are the victims, there's no story. It's complete calm, complete quiet, and that quiet is only shattered when uh, a Palestinian takes a gun or a knife or a stone or, or a Molotov kick cocktail and attacks Israeli settlers or Israeli soldiers. But the fact that the the, the act of military occupation itself, which has been around for since 1967 until this day, and the act of colonization of Palestine, which began 75 years ago. I mean, these are all violent acts. And I don't mean violence from an intellectual point of view as an apartheid and military occupation is in itself a violent act. I mean that the that on a daily basis military occupation apartheid colonialism brings about numerous acts of violence, uh from the violence of Israeli soldiers, the daily killing of Palestinians, to the violence of the destruction of Palestinian homes, Palestinian orchards. And, and, uh, and, and ancient uh, olive trees to, um, to preventing Palestinians to leave or return or go to, the, to their universities or live uh, in nominally normal lives. But nobody talks about it. And it's, it's just really getting to be so frustrating that makes you wonder why, why is Palestine, an occupied country, being seen as an aggressor in in the longest running military occupation in the world, while on the other hand, in the case of Ukraine, for example, the the is the, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine—it hasn't been around officially for a year yet. Yet it is seen to be one of the most gruesome attacks of modern sub- civilization. Why the double standards? So. Not only the the what 's going on in Palestine right now is a retaliation to numerous acts of violence carried out by Israel for a long long time, but since January first until this day, over thirty actually the the number is from two three days ago said so that thirty three Palestinians were killed by Israel last year alone, the United Nations said that two thousand and twenty two has been the most violent year in Palestine since 2005. What happened in 2005? That was the end of the second Palestinian uprising. Since then, until today, last year was the largest number of dead Palestinians in Jenin, in in Jerusalem, in Kalkilia, in Tulkarim, more than any other time. And many of them are children, many of them are civilians. So the question is, why didn't Mr. Blinken find it so urgent to run to Palestine and to Israel and to talk to the leaders about the need for calm? Why didn't Mr. Biden, who yesterday referred to the Palestinian attack in occupied East Jerusalem uh, that killed seven, uh, seven uh, uh, Israeli Jewish settlers, he referred to this as an attack on, on civilization, an attack on civilization. But what happened prior to that, A couple of days prior to that, 10 people were killed, in Janine, 10 people, including an old lady who was killed sitting in her living room. Why wasn't that an attack on civilization? Why wasn't this, or rather the civilized world, just in case I'm quoted, an attack on the civilized world? why was that completely omitted from mr biden's political agenda when the occupier kills occupied people that they are supposed to protect under international law it's nothing it's not a problem at all it's business as usual when palestinians god forbid retaliate in any way that is an affront to uh um, to our civilization why is the why the double standards so mr blinken's visit to palestine
1: uh, go ahead. No, no, please. Uh, uh, just go right ahead. I, I mean, I. Uh, it's so important for you to unpack the story and put it in the context of some kind of reality because you've got somebody talking about, uh, I, I. when I hear two-state solution, what I hear is two-state delusion uh, and uh, as a, a fantasy that's used to every time... Uh, the United States wants to um, sort of suppress the Palestinians and undermine uh, their resistance.
4: That's precisely what, what it is, Dennis. But the fact is, I feel like we are all kind of—I don't know—like that movie, the, the, the Matrix, where the, the the red pill and the yellow uh, and the and the blue pill. I, I can't remember which one puts you in the, in the state of of. You know, uh, illusion, but I feel like we've all have taken swollen the spell of the American mainstream media and American officials from CNN to Fox News. I mean, the weird thing about all of this is that there is massive polarization in the United States right now. They seem to disagree on everything from race to war to police violence and brutality, to immigration, to women's rights, to, to um, um, identity politics, to everything, except to one single story that they, they all have in common. And it's been the same story that American mainstream media has in common throughout the years, and that is Israel good, Palestinians are bad. But you say, but why are Palestinians so bad? I mean, all well, they are occupied people. I mean, what do you expect? What the Ukrainians are doing, they are blowing up bridges, they are doing everything that that the Palestinians haven't actually done. They haven't done a tiny percentage of what Ukraine is doing to fight back. Yet somehow, anything that the Palestinians do is bad. Not just violence, not re- just resistance, but, but even boycotting. I mean, imagine the peaceful act of boycotting, saying, do not buy products that comes from Israeli settlements or products that benefits the Israeli army in any way because the money and the funds go to buy bullets and, and, and guns and kill Palestinians. That in itself is supposed to be an anti-Semitic act. Basically, we have no breathing room whatsoever. We can't get it right in any possible way. And everyone seems to agree. And only when Israelis get killed, Blinken goes, drops everything. And he goes running from Egypt to Israel, to Palestine, to Jordan, trying to ensure that Israel remains safe. No matter what Israel does, nobody cares. We are yelling, we are screaming, we are saying to the world, please pay attention to what's happening here. Our people are dying. Our people are living in complete and utter isolation. We haven't achieved anything of our rights. And apartheid is getting worse and worse by the day. And we don't even get a mention. We don't even get an acknowledgement of our struggle and of our suffering. But if a Palestinian fights back, everybody has to line up in order for them to condemn that terrorist vile act that is an affront to modern civilization.
1: And now there's a situation where you literally have... A bunch of, to put it mildly, uh, uh, accused criminals who are now running the government. They all have records in the leadership, and they have sworn to... Really, make the life of the Palestinian even more miserable than it is. There is we, we, we hear time and again. What do you what goes through your mind when you hear uh, the the uh, uh, the Israelis say they have no partners uh, to make peace with on the Palestinian side? You want to deconstruct that little phrase?
4: So so there, okay? there is a group of yes. people the the optimists. Amongst us, within whether, whether, whether in the Palestinian, uh, within the Palestinian community itself, or within the pro-Palestine camp, that believes that there is an iota of of conscience, there is an iota of common sense, that once Israel crosses certain certain imaginary lines, the world is going to wake up. Americans are going to say no. We are not going to support Israel under these conditions. Not when you have someone like Ben Gvir, a terrorist, or, or Ariel Dari, a convicted criminal, or, 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 or Bezalit, uh, Smutrich, uh, another criminal terrorist and, 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 and a person who made a career just inciting for violence. No, when these people are ministers in a government, it's a fascist government. And and we can't we can't cover Israel um, you know Israeli crimes anymore. We can't we can't make the argument. Well, you know what? This is just uh, Israel's the greatest democracy in the Middle East, and Israel you know is right under any circumstance because this is beyond our ability to bear. But somehow, when I argued this repeatedly in my articles, I said, "Just wait for it." Those optimists, just wait for it. Before you know it, Ben-Gvir is going to become an ally. And all of these criminal characters that the U.S. has warned against joining the Netanyahu government will become part and parcel of whatever American designs in Palestine, Israel, and the Middle East. And that is precisely what's happening right now. Israel is the victim. It has nothing to do with the fact that that Tamar Ben-Gvir raided al-Aqsa Mosque as his first act as a minister of national security. He went to provoke a religious war and nothing happened. And we have forgotten about it completely. We have forgotten about all the anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian, um, anti-Muslim and Christian incitements by Bin Veer and his elk as if not, that no, nothing that is taking place in Palestine is a response to something that existed prior. As if the Palestinian retaliation is the beginning of all events. is the beginning of the timeline of violence. And everything else is forgotten. The killing of all the Palestinians, the constant raid on uh, Jenin, the constant attacks on Nablus, the constant attacks on the Balata refugee camp, the, the, the uh, ongoing siege on the, Bala, on, on the Shafat refugee camp, the attacks on, on Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan neighborhoods in East Jerusalem. None of this matters. None of this is needed for the context. The context is the Palestinians have done something bad and they need to be punished for it. And they keep t- telling us about the Israeli attack. Retali- Israel is, is, is carrying out tougher measures against the Palestinians as a result of the attack in Jerusalem. The tougher measures, not destroying the, the, the homes of people who were not in any way involved. What did the families have to do with this? What did the neighbors... Of the attacker have to do with this? Why are you destroying their homes? The father was was taken by the Israeli soldiers. They broke his arm. They beat him up. They arrested many members of that. What democratic country does this? What state in the in in this civilized world in which Biden keeps referring to accepts this kind of 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 gangster-like criminal behavior? But again, you're not supposed to talk about it. You're just supposed to stand and. Condone and, con- and, and, and refuse to condone such terrorism. And by the way, the term terrorism only applies to Palestinians. No matter what Israel does, no matter what the Israelis do, only Palestinians are terrorists. They are never resistance fighters, they are never peaceful protesters, they are never any category that we can do business with, or we can accept, or we can deal with in any possible way. Only Palestinians are capable of being terrorists. And Israelis, the likes of being there, are in always, always in a state of self-defense, despite the fact that Israel is a a military occupier.
1: It's of course everybody knows it's a nuclear renegade too. But I, I have a question, and I don't, I don't mean it to be rhetorical. But how long does it take an F seventeen A fighter jet uh, that the that Israel gets from the United States? How long does it take? to fly over the occupied, lockdown Gaza Strip with what, over how many million people? Most densely populated uh, Over two
4: million people at this in the point. World.
1: Uh, h- how many drones and how many jets and p- how long does it take to uh, provide a bomb for every living Palestinian? And they could do it in a second, uh, but they they don't go that far, do they? When they do what they call mowing the lawn.
4: That's right, because because Gaza right now, if if you know anybody who's been to Gaza in recent times, it really is like a high security prison. Um, in in there, there is no escape; you are trapped. Uh, electric fences, walls everywhere. Um, last time I was in Gaza, I I was able to. I, I arrived at night. I opened the window of my hotel. And it was right on the beach, and I what I saw in front of me this very strange sight, of all it's like almost like the Israeli Navy lining up at the horizon, blocking any movement or an out, out of Gaza via sea, and all of these Palestinian fishermen are trapped within within three kilometer you know area, uh, uh, or three nautical miles rather, um, and all trying fighting for for the small amount of fish that is there. And the drones are buzzing everywhere, we, we're, for a reason or no reason. It's it's a psychological warfare. We call them we call them in Arabic the tanana because it it kind of has this like like this strange sounds that that's almost like deafening. You don't get used to it. That's a strange thing. So mm-hmm. you see the drones on top of you, filming, taking pictures constantly, and you see the soldiers on the other side. Of defense with their guns and that watchtowers and towards the sea you see the navy they're lining up ready to shoot any fishermen who would dare go beyond the three nautical miles and all of this is happening in a space that is supposed to be calm this is not an act of violence this is an everyday reality in fact israel tells you um, we have already evacuated Gaza. Gaza is not—it's uh, not our responsibility. In fact, they already declared Gaza a hostile territory. Okay, so if you have evacuated Gaza, why don't you allow Gazans to come and leave? Why are they blocked from all directions? The vast majority of people in Gaza are are, are minors under the age of 17, and and the vast majority of all Gazans never stepped out of Gaza. We are talking about a space that is 181 square miles. It's a very tiny stretch of land in which something like 2.1 million lives. And even the little agricultural land that that allowed Gaza to exist and, and practice some kind of self-sufficiency in terms of food that has been destroyed by Israel. All of this land has been destroyed because most of this land is near the Israeli defense that Israel imposed on, 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 on Gaza. And nobody dares to get there. Quite often, farmers get shot when they are trying to reach uh, their crops or or, the, or their orchards. So many people don't dare to even venture out there. And Israel wants us to believe that this is a state of normalcy now. If a Palestinian, under these circumstances, you know, dared carry a gun, throw a rock, do anything of that nature, that's an act of violence, and that Palestinian deserves to be executed on the spot. And American media would report on that as an infringement on Israeli security by the Palestinians. But that reality, this very strange uh, um, um, Kafkian reality imposed by Israel on the Palestinians for decades— it is supposed to be a, state, a normal state of affairs. And Palestinians are not even allowed to complain about it. Because the, mean, the mere complaint or criticism or attempting, attempting to get the Security Council or the, United, or, or the General Assembly to condemn Israel in any way is an act of anti-Semitism. So what do you do? You are trapped. You can't even talk. You can't even be on mainstream media. And if you are, you are going to be shouted out and insulted. As if you are a common criminal. I made it to, you know, strangely a few days ago to some, uh, some, some uh, uh, mainstream outlet, and I didn't even answer the first question before the the news anchor asked me. He said, "Do you condone what the Palestinians are doing to the Israelis?" I said, "Sir, I am not a politician. I am a historian, and I am a journalist." I'm going to provide you with contests. He said, sir, do you condone what the Palestinians are doing? How do you even deal with that sort of thinking? And these are when once in, you know, once in a blue moon, there's a tiny little space for us Palestinians to even express our viewpoint about these issues.
0: You're listening to The Best of Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Up finally on today's show, we feature a segment on the water privatizers in Florida.
1: We're all thirsty some of the time, uh, but uh, folks in Florida and across this country could end up being thirsty uh, for most of the time, and when they get the water, they're going to pay a lot of money for it, and it might kill them, because there is a movement in this country, a corporate movement, to privatize the water systems, uh, and uh, uh, Florida is uh, in the midst of it. Wendy Letterman, welcome. To flashpoints. good Thank to have you
5: with us. Thank you so much, Dennis. appreciate
1: it. Well, let, let's talk about, uh, it looks like uh, the Fort Lauderdale is about ready to give away its water rights for the next 30 years to a foreign corporation. I'm thinking that you don't think this is such a good thing. Um, you want to talk a little bit about why you have concerns about the privatization of U.S. water systems, and uh, there in your own uh, hometown, home neighborhood, home state of Florida, Fort Lauderdale. You're you're in yeah. the middle of this one. Yeah, and it's it's.
5: Something we've been fighting for a couple of years, and I really appreciate the the platform because this is kind of a silent killer in a form of financial violence. Um, kind of the segue from your your last segment, where um, like the the voiceless especially just have no say. This is something that really should go to a vote to the people to have their their vital resources, um, you know, privatized. And it's just there's three people basically that will get to decide for seven cities um, what's going to happen to their water for the next. 30 years and um we're expecting rates to increase at a minimum of 140 percent for us and it's really no need
1: for 140 percent uh, wow they're yeah. not telling you that though are they
5: well no you know what that's the part that they are telling us and they won't tell us they're telling us that it's capped but see i've had the the, the masochistic experience of reading through the contracts and it's clear that the, the there's really no telling how much the rates could go up because the company could file for relief events um, for any number of service interruptions, interruptions to work. And they're, they're literally telling us that the city would be able to file for these. Like the, Like everything that they're telling us is backwards when you read the contract. And that's what's so scary especially for the nation, because they're so casual about this template that they're doing in all different pockets of the country. I see a pattern where the infrastructure is being neglected so that these representatives, you have their friends that are lobbyists and consultants, you know, they they convince people to say, oh, well, you know, we can't afford to fix what we've messed up, so we're going to have to bring in these private corporations. And, you know, first of all, there's billions of dollars right now in the epa for grants and loans that for us particularly they're not even applying for or trying for but um in our specific situation um we we actually had a study done a few years back um, when aaron brockovich called our water worse than flint and that's for two reasons one is because the treatment plant was so old but it really has to do with the chemical disinfectants that they use and the byproducts that they cause and ammonia is known to discolor the water and it's mixed with chlorine it creates chloramine which creates all kinds of health problems and can react with the metal in the pipes and it's it's just a really a nightmare that the epa is not properly regulating and this this goes for one-fifth of american cities that this chloramine is used and so um With this deal, they're they're telling us, you know, uh, sorry, so they, they did a study a couple of years ago with a reputable engineering firm, which found that they could refurbish the existing plant and they could add carbon ozone filtration. And that would cost about $200 million. And of course, there's been a slight bit of inflation, but generally it would cost about $200 million. Right now, the deal that they're Planning on doing that, the final vote is actually on Tuesday $666 million. That's I can't even make that up. It's $666 million to build a new plant at the end of a runway that's four miles north of the existing treatment plant. So they'd have to install four miles of pipes instead of investing in the, the already crumbling infrastructure. And this is so that this um, Israeli co- corporation can invest 25% of the construction cost. 75% of this will be paid for in city bonds that they're going to take out. And plus the city is going to pay for electric insurance, um, the, the taxes, the, the chemicals that go in, the feed water, um get the gasoline apparently the diesel that they need for operation and maintenance and the city then the corporation is going to sell us back our water for the next 30 years after, you know,
1: they, they give us 25% of the startup cost. All right, um, Wendy, let me tell people a little bit more about what you've been up to and who you are. We are speaking with Wendy Letterman. Uh, she is an environmental social justice advocate, founder, administrator of the Fort Lauderdale Water Crisis Community Forum on Facebook, Ambassador to Florida, Right to Clean Water campaign, part of the Rights of, to Nature movement, co-convener with Harvey Wasserman and weekly grassroots protection show uh and that also appears on the progressive radio network just wanted to tell people that you're deeply engaged here now the the you by the way you did say at the end of a runway
5: yeah uh,
1: that's a pertinent point isn't it you want to say a little bit more about why you might not want to put it there
5: i I mean what it it's, uh, it literally leaves me like speechless honestly i mean i mean we this particular um airport it's an executive airport so it's mostly private jets that are coming in and out and i mean there've been i mean more than a handful of plane crashes adjacent to that airport it's just in the last decade alone um if, if anything happens i mean they would take out the water supply and again this is for seven other cities if anyone listening um knows anyone in broward county area it's uh, oakland park wilton manors lauderdale by the sea sea ranch lakes tamarack and davie plus port everglades and so there's a commission at fort lauderdale commission five members three of them have a quorum vote for all of these residents and so um the i mean why would you put a water treatment plant for seven cities at the end of a runway i mean i like i i just i, I can't even speak to it it's beyond me and it i honestly i'm sorry it's just it, it tongue ties me and, and i mean if there was any kind of like we weren't wanted to be a target for any nefarious actors i mean not to be paranoid but you know that's that's a good place to start and in the FAA, they need to. Um, they said that they've done them, but when I spoke with the FAA, I don't. I, I don't think it's been done. They needed to make sure that there's all kinds of environmental studies that they're not attracting any kind of nuisances or wildlife to to the runway that would throw off the the flight paths. And um, they're. It's also at a well field, so FAA told me that they need to move an existing drain well that runs two miles south and the the project company in a town hall they're actually saying that there's no such thing like they're just denying it completely and then we have to pay the insurance like how much more is the insurance when you're building a water treatment plant at the end of a runway than refurbishing one that's been there for 50 years it's just beyond me
1: no and they are definitely willing to play hardball this uh, they initially tried to rush all this through in September um, talk a little bit about what it took to resist that uh, uh, they don't they don't mess around do they
5: Thank you for for bringing that up. Um, yeah, I mean, I I found out about this about three years ago when we had um, a series of at least five sewage spills. That's why I started the forum, the the water forum, because they they were basically telling people to go, you know, do recreational activities in the waterways where we three hundred fifty or three hundred million gallons of raw sewage in the water. And I started I did a protest for that, which turned into the forum, and that's where I'm at. Boyd Corbin, who um, just ran for mayor of Wilton Manors, and he was on the case of discovering and and trying to make public what was going on with this privatization deal that they, they started doing years ago. This was in 2019. Um... And just just to give a little bit of background, in 2019, the uh, the mayor and his friends they took a thirty thousand dollar tax funded trip to Israel to seek investors for this treatment plant, and um they they signed on with a company called Poseidon, who later on the commissioners were caught in like secret lunches and spending tens of thousands of dollars in consultant fees. And that was busted by a small newspaper. I have to call out the sun Sentinel for not reporting on this and for skewing and uh, not giving proper coverage and convincing people that we don't have a choice. But, um, so we discovered that they, um, it was a conflict of interest. It was an ethical question to not go with Poseidon. And so we signed, we, got into negotiations with ide ridgewood which is another israeli company and um three commissioners just last year were stepping down um for different reasons so we were having a special election in november and they were trying to rush this through and um rush through the vote and you know us residents you know have been just spreading the word as best we can word of mouth and you know it gained some attention and so um so the city attorney actually told the commission that he couldn't submit the agreement the, the deal for agreement because it was quote too risky. And the um, IDE gave an ultimatum saying, Well you have to sign on by November first, otherwise we're we're pulling out of the deal. And so the remaining two commissioners, Mayor Trance Ellis and Steve Glassman, are like, Oh, we'll we'll just we'll find another we'll find another company. And put it on ice and you know figure out when we get the new commission so as soon as the new commission comes in and that's a whole other story but i'll quickly say one of the new commissioners was the city auditor that was fired after fi- filing for whistleblower status because he was investigating the police chief for um, using city money to to work other jobs so he became a commissioner they had to they, they resisted his election for a month so we were without a forum for a month once he finally came in they fired the city attorney who called the deal too risky, went back to IDE Ridgewood with just a few tweaks to the labor agreement. And now they're pushing through the vote again after having some showboating with a couple of town halls where they're literally just lying out their teeth through about what's involved in this contract. And um, and uh, sorry, it's just it's so much information Um. But yeah, so um, they're just they're trying to push this through and it's the oh and that was it. The, the IDE, it turns out Poseidon, the company that was originally um taking all the backroom deals, they're a subsidiary of I D E. So the deal never changed from the first um bad interest from years ago that's how shady these people are and they're, they're trying to take over the water system and i have people writing to me telling me that they're afraid that they're not going to be able to pay their water bill and they're going to lose their house because they won't be able to keep it up to code
1: absolutely Wow. Well and just we just have um sixty seconds, but um we've heard a lot about Flint and the devastation there. Uh we've heard a little bit uh, about Jackson, Mississippi and the devastation there. Are are we all in danger now uh, Absolutely. of of getting ugly water or losing control of our water altogether?
5: Definitely, definitely. I mean, the first thing I can just think of off the top of my head is this company is basing their success off the desalination plant down in San Diego. If you look that up, turns out um, San Diego has one of the highest water rates in the world, and um, Sierra Clubs calls it uh, um, a costly mistake. Uh, Food and Water Watch did the most comprehensive study of all privately owned versus publicly owned um, water systems, and they found on average 59% higher rates with a greater chance of contamination because there's no oversight it's happening everywhere yeah like people need to wow. be aware of it because it's happening in secret wow. so, all
1: right wendy where, how do people get more information what do you recommend we just got 10 seconds go
5: um fort lauderdale water crisis community forum on facebook or just look up water privatization in the united states and florida thank you
0: That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.